You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst. How are you, David? Giles, I'm well and as usual, I trust all our listeners are enjoying the podcast and and, uh, going about their business. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Look, we've got a um, a, a really great interview today with uh, Darren Miller, the Chief Executive of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, and then... um, couple of other things to talk about later on, more negative prices, Kogan Creek back into the um, market and we'll talk about that and uh, a Grattan Institute report talking about Australian government policy and looking forward to the Fin Review um, Conference um, Energy Summit. But David, look, I just think without further ado, let's just get into the um, arena um, interview. What do you reckon? Yes, let's hear, hear, hear what Darren had to say. It was pretty interesting. Yeah, Darren Miller, the Chief Executive of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Darren Miller, thanks for joining Energy Insiders. Well, thanks for having me, Giles and David. Thank you. Look, it's um, been just over a year now since you took over as Chief Executive of ARENA from the uh, founding CEO, Ivor Frischnecht. Uh, before that, you were in the um, in, in the private area. And in fact, I think you headed Mojo Energy, which I guess you probably... Um, describe as a like a you know one of those companies seeking to disrupt the energy establishment um are you still seeking to disrupt or is it uh, more about kind of knitting together no we're always disrupting because energy is changing we're in a we're in an incredible transition from an old uh, centralized model using fossil fuel to a new renewable future which is going to be largely uh, distributed and uh, democratized and consumer focused so all of that is quite disruptive whether you're running a small business like mojo trying to disrupt the big retailers or uh, or working in arena in a government agency that's trying to get new technologies up and going it's uh, both both of those are highly innovative and interesting yeah, I mean, you've been there for 12 months now. I'm just interested in engaging. And, and what we'd love to do is to go through the, your new investment plan, which you've announced recently and talked about the technologies you're talking about there. But um, I'm just wondering, after a year running the arena, um, and you just talked about the disruption, um, do you get a sense that the speed of the transition is actually accelerating or uh, decelerating? And if it's doing either of those, for, for what reasons? Yeah, I, I mean... I don't know if it's accelerating, but it certainly feels extremely busy and and highly sort of productive inside the industry. And a a lot of it is is just highly innovative. So it seems like you take two steps forwards and then one step back when you you hit things like grid constraints and, uh, you know, things like system security issues with variable renewable energy that you have to solve. But um, I I suppose that's just the nature of uh, what we have to go through over over the decades is just... uh, encountering new problems and solving them as we go. And, and uh, it's good to have smart engineers and smart finance people and researchers involved to to solve these problems as we head towards uh, a renewable energy future. Darren, Darren, I just wonder about ARENA's own future to an extent. I was looking at this uh, funding plan and it seems to me like you, ARENA has something a bit over $400 million, uh, available to spend to the end of uh, fiscal 2023. Uh, how do you think of ARENA 
beyond that time, if, if at all, uh, is there any discussion about extending its, its work? Yeah, so just to be clear, um, we were set up in 2012 um, with effectively what will end up to be a $2.1 billion mandate, um, of which roughly $1.9 billion of that will be spent on projects. The, the remaining money is, is sort of overheads and, and admin. But um, of that sort of 1.9, if you like, that we'll spend on projects, we've got about, you know, per, per our uh, publicly available information on our website, as at 30 June, about 280 million available still to commit to projects. So if you think about um, the, the pipeline and how that eventuates, you know, when we commit to projects, it takes a number of years for those projects to actually roll out and for the cash to be spent. So at some point in our cycle, we won't have... Uh, under, under current mandate, we won't have any more money available to commit. And as things stand right now, we think that that date will be sometime around December next year, so 12, sort of 12 to 18 months' time from now is what we think we'll have left with our current um, money in terms of commitment time frame. The projects will then obviously take a number of years to roll out and we'll have knowledge sharing at the end of that, but that is the intended um, funding profile for ARENA as it was set up in 2012. And in terms of your question about the future, well, it, it, the future is unknown for ARENA at this point, and the government is considering, um, you know, whether we should play a role going forward. And I, I think fair to say that um, um, Minister Taylor is very positive about the role that we play and certainly the role that technology will play in reducing Australia's emissions. So we're in conversations about what role we might be able to assist with going forward, but, but as we speak right now, that's not determined. I can't help but thinking actually that uh, in the Australian government's own emissions profile and, and, and how it meets its Paris target, there's uh, 100 million tonnes come from, say, quote unquote, new technologies. So um, um, we haven't, haven't actually been deciphered yet. So uh, perhaps you could play a role in that. Why don't we well, talk about these new technologies? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, that, I think that is the role that we play. I mean, it's, uh, we, we are um, one of the key parties involved in helping research get out of the lab and uh, and be piloted and demonstrated and you know put into commercial operation uh, our role spans that research development deployment and commercialization phase and and then we sort of in in a sense hand the baton over to the CEFC who then goes and uh, funds yeah. the projects from a debt and equity perspective but we've got that important role to play in that in those early stages well, let's talk about this new funding plan. So you've identified three strategic areas, and let's go through them one by one. Um, there is grid integration, there's hydrogen, and there's also in manufacturing and processing and things like that. Let's go into grid inter integration first. What's your priorities? I mean, you've, you've had things in virtual power plants and other battery technologies and stuff like that. So what are you looking at now? Yeah, I mean, so specifically the challenge right now, and really it's kind of a short-term challenge to figure out how to run the electricity system with increasing shares of renewable um, electricity. So our attention is not on the generation of, of renewable energy per se. We think well, certainly wind is, has been commercial through our life and we were instrumental in helping solar PV to get to commerciality at the utility scale. So our attention is firmly on how do we provide uh, and how do we... How do we uh, elevate um, technologies into those system services, security, and ultimately storage and reliability aspects of the grid as we as we move to higher shares of renewable energy. So it's vitally important that for the renewable transition not to be slowed down, that we unblock um, barriers, be that in transmission, be that in the services, that thermal 
uh, generation provides that that may not be provided in the future. And also coordinating the distributed energy uh, technologies that consumers are adopting in increasing uh, increasing shares, so rooftop solar batteries, soon to be um, EVs, uh, and and the ability of uh, consumers to participate, sort of as equal participants in the energy market. We think that's an important feature of the future market, and um, we're working on all sorts of things in that space around software, consumer engagement, working with the networks, working with AMO and others to to sort of make that happen. So that's really speaking to to that first priority of integrating renewables into the electricity system. So, so I, I, I think that Australia has the potential and probably the ability to be a world leader in the integration of distributed electricity. And, and the reason for that is just obviously that we've got a lot of it, so we have to be able to do it. And, and secondly, I think we've probably got plenty of software expertise one way or another in Australia. But where I, where I think... Uh, um, everyone's missed the boat, and, and when I say everyone, I include myself, but also you have to include Arena, uh, um, is, is on the transmission side of things, and particularly as we move to system strength and um, uh, lower inertia. I mean, this is entirely predictable, but Australia seems to be so far behind in the power electronics side of things compared to what's already been done in Europe and uh, even in the United States. How do you see Arena's role in, I guess, moving beyond synchronous condensers and those sort of things? And, and, and where are we on that, that that part of the thing from, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, so we are deeply involved with um, uh, talking to the likes of Transgrid and state governments and, and various other uh, TNSPs about um, the ability to um, increase transmission capacity, be that interconnectors or renewable energy zones and the like. I mean, we have a small role to play there. It's really about coordination. We don't have huge amounts of money to spend on grid infrastructure, um, but uh, but that is probably something that's going to be, need to be spent to to really open up those networks and allow renewable generation to to come into the market. But where we are spending um, a, a lot of our time and where we can have a lot of impact from Arena's perspective is in um, working with industry to sort of unlock the technical and economic and regulatory potential of large-scale batteries. Um, we know that uh, when you read the, uh, the sticker, the, the, the nameplate or the manual of the battery, we know it ought to be able to do a bunch of things that it's not doing right, that they're not doing right now or not being paid to do. And uh, one of the key roles we have is to um, work with the manufacturers, work with the industry to put these in place and actually test the capabilities of these batteries to provide those system uh, services like uh, uh, virtual synchronous generation, uh, system strength, um, inertia, etc. So these are all things that need to be proven in, in reality rather than just uh, as a theoretical construct. And um, we think that large-scale batteries can provide a bunch of services to replace what we've lost from uh, thermal generation or what we will lose over time. Uh, and hopefully we can prove that we don't need to support synchronous condensers forever, that they're just an interim measure while, we, uh, while we're putting in renewable energy at, uh, at, at huge rates that, you know, as, as we are in, in, in our network today. Well, I just wondered, I mean, it obviously, look, it's beyond Arena's area of expertise uh, and, and we shouldn't spend too long on this one topic, but it does seem to me like... Uh, someone ought to get down to the AMC and show them a new, how a rule book for a modern generation system would look in theory. 
so they could actually work on doing something sensible in practice rather than... Uh, but anyway, perhaps uh, <laughs> that's an inappropriate well, comment. Well, it probably is, David, but I think it's a fair one at the same time. And uh, maybe I'll rephrase the question if that was a question to ask Darren. I mean, I guess the challenge is this, this transition thing, isn't it? Because you can, you've can you got old technology, which is slowly being left behind. You've got new technology coming in. The, the, the challenge is really to integrate that and transition to that, recognising the new technology which is going to come, but keeping the system upright at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just think that um, our rules and, and the frameworks we have were designed for the old way of doing things where there wasn't a lot of change. It was just, uh, you know, market signals and regulation to allow the occasional gas peaker to come into the market. And, and the world is changing rapidly. And I don't, I don't know that the, um, the rules, the frameworks and, and, the, and the markets that we have are, are those that we need to, to have um, the system transition as rapidly as, as the market seems to want it to, to happen. And I think to that end, you know, I think that the work that the ESB is looking at around the future, you know, the NEM 2025 project is, is going to be really interesting and important work because, um, you know, without um, rethinking how these rules work and, and, and what the services are that you need and that you'll pay for, we're not going to get a smooth transition. So this is all about trying to be economically efficient as we proceed. Um, and, and I think that we do need to, as an industry, take a closer look at these incentives and, and, and the way that this technology um, is, is viewed by, by the market. And, and Darren, uh, we shouldn't spend any more than the appropriate time on this extremely important topic, and maybe it's not where ARENA has the most part to value, but I just wonder, do you see any projects coming forward that are trying to uh, take advantage of five-minute settlement or, or explain how the system will work better or differently in, in, in that specific area? Uh, look, in, in the 12, 13 months that I've been in, I haven't really heard anyone talk too much about five-minute settlement in terms of needing technical solutions for that. I think it's just a, now a work in progress for the various retailers and others to, to have their systems cope with that. Um, I, you know, I think five-minute settlement will have challenges in terms of... Um, having you know the ability to even provide caps that that respond to five minute time frames and I think that ultimately we're just going to need some large-scale batteries that can respond very quickly and pumped hydro ultimately which can do sort of a similar job but maybe not as as quick in terms of a five minute window but but those are the two key technologies that are going to be needed to provide um, you know the, that that support to that five minute settlement um, you know framework and I was just about to move on to the hydrogen economy, but I have to put in a quick question now about pumped hydro. Um, you guys are involved, I think, in um, funding, um, assessing um, some projects coming up in South Australia. I think they were recently announced by, um, um, oh, I can't remember now, whether it's the state or the federal government or both. But um, tell me where that's at and what, what the timing is for those. Yeah, so we've, um, we've had a number of approaches from um, uh, parties in South Australia for pumped hydro facilities that they'd like to get up. And um, we're uh, collaborating with the South Australian government with their grid scale storage fund. Uh, and um, jointly, we've, we've assessed these approaches and have narrowed down to um, four projects that um, w we believe um, can reach financial close in a short amount of short space of time. So we've set a, an ideal date of, say, 30 June next year to reach financial close on a project. Um, we, we're not sure that the market can bear more than one at a time because each one sort of eats the next one's lunch, so to speak, because they, uh, mm. they make their money from arbitraging um, wholesale prices in that market. 
So really, we think we'd like to um, have the best project come forward at this stage and receive funding from ARENA and potentially from the South Australian government as well. Um, and we've set a um, uh, set an, an envelope of $40 million for, for a project in that market. And we're currently in a what we're calling a further assessment process. The winner process. takes all. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's it possibly is that in the first instance. But, but as we know from you know, AMO's ISP, we need, you know, say 20 gigawatts of, of storage by 2040. So this is just the start of a, of a larger transition, right. but uh, somebody has to get, get it going. And uh, we haven't had a, a private pumped hydro facility built in 35 years in Australia, and uh, we're keen to see one done. And so Darren, uh, you mentioned the timing, you're, you're in a process for that now. Uh, uh, you've got an idea when that process might, might, uh, reach reach its conclusion. Um, yeah, so I think we have a we have a view that we will be choosing the the project uh, that we'll support by the end of this calendar year, and that that project will ideally then reach financial close within six months, so by thirty June next year. That's a, that's exciting. It is yeah. exciting, and please do us a favour and don't 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 announce it on Christmas Eve because we might not be here, and there might be a thousand other things announced on the same time. But anyway, look, let's move on to the second stream of your investment, um, uh, hydrogen. Um, look, the hydrogen economy has been coming for three decades now. What makes you feel that it's got closer? Yeah, look, I haven't been um, following it for three decades. Only uh, only really got interested in hydrogen um, in the last. Um, 12 months since I've been at Arena, but I think it's incredibly exciting as an opportunity um, for, for a few reasons that I think could make this the, the time that, that it actually happens. I mean, firstly, um, Japan and South Korea have um, stated publicly and emphatically that they um, want to switch to renewable energy over, over the course of the next uh, couple of decades, and hydrogen will be a big part of that. Uh, they, they, have, uh, they don't have the ability to generate enough renewable energy for their local economies and will be importers of energy for a long time. Um, so there's a sort of a giant uh, set of demand that that is out there in the future. But um, um, And then the, the other side of it is that um, the key input into the production of renewable hydrogen is, the, is renewable electricity. And you need really low-cost renewable electricity to make renewable hydrogen competitive and economic and and for the first time now with solar and wind prices being so low and keep and continue to go down we can now see a path through to very low cost renewable electricity so those two things need to happen to have uh, hydrogen happen at scale um, but but i suppose what we've done at arena um, recently with these new priorities is just focus on the domestic opportunity in the first instance because unless we um, start to uh, work with hydrogen in the local economy, we won't get the experience, we won't get the cost reductions in electrolyzers and the scale into the renewable energy that we need to take advantage of, of, of an export opportunity. And that's still probably a decade away. So um, we looked at the Australian economy and saw many opportunities for hydrogen to be utilized, um, uh, it, whether that's injection to gas networks or remote area power stations or heavy transport. Um, there's just plenty of opportunities in the Australian market, and that's our focus to try and drive that to um, commerciality in the Australian market before uh, before taking advantage or before being able to take advantage of an export opportunity. And so, Darren, of those domestic opportunities, which one do you think do you have a view at the moment? 
like whether it's for ammonia production or power of gas or, or in transport, do you see one or the other as uh, being in, in, in front at the moment? Because when it comes to the export side of things, what always worries me is that the cost advantage, as I see it at the moment, the cost advantage of solar and wind in Australia versus Japan uh, may get it well eaten up by the transport cost, uh, you know, which at the moment, of course, is, is fairly high. Yeah, I think that's a, a real risk for the for the export side. So I think we need innovation in in uh, transport and storage and transport. And I think that um, we don't yet know what the right carrier will be or, or carriers will be to actually move the hydrogen, whether that's uh, uh, compressed hydrogen, you know, through liquefaction, or whether that's going to be ammonia, or whether that's going to be you know bonded to to, to metals, you know, in in the, in the uh, at, at the atomic level and and, and transported as a, as a metal. Uh, we just we just don't know yet how that's going to work or, or what will win out. Um, which is why we've sponsored you know a lot of research into the area to try and try and innovate, um, and we've got time to do that. Uh, I think that um, you know between now and, and say twenty thirty, you know, who knows what kind of progress we can make in in that kind of um, space, but. Um, I think that's sort of the, you know, the, the 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 thing we should really aim for is that export opportunity. But in doing that, if if all we get is a great domestic opportunity, well, that might be pretty good too. You know, it, it might be that hydrogen gets exported as as steel. You know, we just uh, we dig up a lot of um, iron ore and ship that over to to China and gets processed into steel. Maybe with our automation, digitization of our of our industrial um, uh, um, you know sector and and uh, and the use of hydrogen as a in, in the steel making process, maybe we'll be a big exporter of steel one day. I mean, that could be that could be where it heads in a decade's time or more. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's that's unknown. But in terms of the domestic opportunities, we we have a number of opportunities to um, produce renewable hydrogen where um, existing fossil fuel based hydrogen is, is already used. So, um, we've announced a few a few of those projects already. We're looking at injection into the gas infrastructure, which is not really the most prospective or ideal um, use case for hydrogen, but it is a place that you can um, put large amounts of hydrogen if you haven't got a, a, a higher value offtake. Uh, and we're working with, um, with a number of proponents who are looking at, at, at injecting hydrogen into the gas networks at, uh, say, up to 10% penetration, but potentially more. And then I think that the, the 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 best areas in terms of commerciality are things like ammonia production and ammonium nitrate, and uh, we've got a lot of interest um, from industry in Australia already around renewable hydrogen into those processes. And then the other things that we think are highly prospective would be remote area power, where you're displacing diesel, which might be at three fifty four hundred dollars a megawatt hour, and hydrogen is already cheaper um, than than that, and it's just a question of somebody taking. The risk on a new technology and working with the likes of Arena to 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 prove that that it can and does work, and we'd be pretty confident it does. Uh, but that there's plenty of those uh, remote power stations that could use hydrogen as the sort of balancing fuel um, in their mix instead of diesel or or even gas. Mm. I'm just wondering whether those two projects that you announced, um, the ammonia nitrate ones, two up in Queensland, which were really quite fascinating because they may well come with um, large-scale renewable projects um, too. Um, does that sort of cross over between the second stream that we've just been talking about, hydrogen, and the next stream, which is supporting industry to reduce emissions, or um, is that something different again? 
Yeah, like no, none of these things fall necessarily into into one box or neatly into one box. So yeah, something like that, uh, Giles cuts across, um, you know, our hydrogen priority as well as supporting industry to reduce emissions because you're you're displacing fossil based hydrogen um, and therefore mm. reducing emissions by doing that. I mean, we shouldn't also lose sight of the ability of hydrogen um, to stabilize the electricity system. Um, you know, I think that uh, if we do hydrogen at scale, it's going to need vast amount of solar and wind production domestically. And I think that should be grid connected and that can provide a balancing service to the electricity system. Um, you know, I have an emerging sort of view that um, if hydrogen does get done at scale, then as a byproduct of hydrogen, we're going to get really cheap electricity for the domestic market because you'll just need so much wind and solar to produce hydrogen that this this idea of um uh, you know, not having enough renewable energy will just be a weird, a weird concept that we had in the, you know, in the in the late, uh, in the late twenty tens, um, and uh, it'll, it'll <laughs> it, 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 this, this, this sounds like the forecast for two hundred percent renewable energy, sort of having so much wind and solar, some of it for exports, but also to benefit the local grid and um, and local industry. Well, I think I think two hundred percent is just too too. It's too small. I mean, it, it could be six six seven six seven times the size of the NEM to produce. What we what we do in the LNG industry, and Alan Finkel talks about this um, uh, with great passion and 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 has good calculations to back it up. But if we try and uh, make hydrogen into the same kind of opportunity that we've got now out of um, LNG, we'll probably need seven hundred uh, gigawatts of solar or combination of solar and wind to to pr to produce the hydrogen. So we'll just have a giant e electricity system of which the domestic you know, residential, commercial end use will be just a small share of that. Most of it will be for uh, for industrial use. So let, let me just um, sorry, sorry, David, sorry, David, but seven hundred gigawatts of wind and solar. So that, that these are the numbers that have been seriously talked about then um, for a hydrogen economy. That's a big, that's a big number. Well, it's a it's it's a scenario where if you if you run the scenario that says, um, you know, I think the world's consumption of hydrogen today is about sixty megatons. Uh, there's projections from BNEF that say that'll grow to 10 times that um, in, in, in a couple of decades. I think maybe it's 2040 or 2050, but a couple of decades, put, put that out there. And if Australia does well in the hydrogen space and we represent 10 or 15% of world um, hydrogen production, which is not out of the question, that's sort of um, not, not an order of magnitude larger than what we do in natural gas, then you just work backwards to say, well, how much how much wind and solar do we need to produce the hydrogen? And you get just extremely large numbers. Uh, you know, we're talking about an electricity system that's probably six or seven times the size of the NEM to produce that. And and I would argue that we should be thinking about having that as as grid connected electricity. Why build it outside of the electricity system? You would probably want to connect that and have good interconnectors back into the, the, the electricity system that that we use for residential or commercial and by and by that account um if you if you've done that at scale and and done it well then you've just by definition lowered the cost of electricity dramatically for everyone Extraordinary. it makes David. me like it makes me laugh because you're probably in the same situation now where the export price like you do in lng where the export price of gas has all the domestic consumers uh uh complaining but i think we're a long way away from that and it would imply to me that all of that uh uh, and, and I think also, Darren, isn't that there's also research just before we quickly move off hydrogen, because there's a third area that's of interest to me. But uh, 
Uh, even you, you talk about the 600 gigawatts, but in fact, there is research into seeing if we can't make the electrolysis process uh, done completely differently in a way that would require less overall energy, however cheap it was. Um, yeah, I mean, look, efficiency of the electrolysis process is something that, that we need to work on, and we're already doing that through some of the work we've done in the R&D space. But there's some probably there's some natural limits there anyway. I mean, I think we're looking at... Um, you know, fifty percent say energy losses in the current process, but even if it was one hundred percent efficient, you know, so it's not six hundred gigawatts; it's three hundred gigawatts of solar and wind. It's still significant and material. It sort of doesn't matter. But, but, but I no doubt we'll be talking about this again next year. Uh, let's move on to the third area, which I think is manufacturing industry's great hope. I mean, everyone knows that manufacturing industry, heavy manufacturing in Australia was built on the basis of cheap coal-fired electricity. I'm not going to beat about the bush and say that. And that in recent years, because of the globalisation of coal prices, uh, and I'll put it like that, in fact, manufacturing industry in Australia, and, and, and that's modern manufacturing, which is things like data centres, if we didn't have privacy laws, um, our metadata laws, it, it all, all requires cheap electricity. And at the moment, Australia's electricity on a global scale, even though our wind and, and, and solar is cheap, but our global electricity is not cheap. And so manufacturing is not particularly competitive from an energy point of view. It's not necessarily as badly off as, as, the, as the industry complains it is. But uh, and, and So that's one side of it. And then there's the basic uh, uh, doing manufacturing differently is there a lot of, really a lot of prospects here or is it all just uh, pie in the sky? Um, no, no. I mean, I think that um, it, it's there. It's probably the hardest of the three priorities for us to um, achieve meaningful impact in the time that we have remaining. Um, but it is, a, it is an area that we lag um, in, in terms of, you know, when you compare, compare Australia to international best practice, we lag in, in industrial energy productivity. Um, and... Um, uh, so we think it's worth making a statement that um, we're willing to support industry who wants to innovate and try and reduce emissions and and ultimately reduce cost. But our focus is on emissions in the industry space. Uh, and, and what we're most interested in is electrification of industrial processes that use um, gas or coal uh, or something else for industrial heat purposes. So, you know, if you imagine a food processor that needs you know, 100 degree steam that might use gas um, at many hundreds of degrees, well, we, we would be looking at an electrical solution for, for, for that process, which is uh, firstly more efficient. And secondly, we know that the electricity system is easiest to decarbonize. Uh, and so this theme of electrification is actually an important theme. Um, I mean, we talked about it in the hydrogen space around increasing um, demand for electricity if we can have industry increase its demand for electricity and we can have EVs, for example, increase the demand for electricity, we can grow the electricity system and that can lead to a better utilisation of networks as well as cheaper generation of electricity because if you do things at scale, you get cost reductions. So really, it's touching on the cost reduction side for industry, but it's, it's largely about, well, how can we become more productive uh, and, and reduce emissions in, in doing that? Um, and um, we've we've got our hand firmly up for industry to come and work with us on on things that um, uh, that, that speak to that. But it, but it is the hardest nut to crack because industry is just busy doing what it does day in day out, and they they often want very short payback timeframes and very low risk. And obviously, some of these things are quite disruptive to your existing sort of manufacturing facility. Um, and uh, there's not that many greenfield 
industrial facilities being built that you can put these things into. So um, it is it is a difficult one, but but pretty important for the emissions and reduction so story in Australia. I've I've been to visit many a brick factory and a cement kiln, uh, paper manufacturing. Uh, there's an awful lot of industrial uh, process gas, even in things like bakeries. Uh, uh, do you see, I mean, is there work out there at the moment to see that uh, electricity-fired heat production can be cost-effective? Or, I mean, I'm not even aware of the, like if I wanted to run a cement kiln on, on electricity instead of, instead of, uh, instead of uh, 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 well, I suppose some of them are run on, but to run, say, a brick kiln on electricity instead of, instead of gas, we're not really there yet, are we? Yeah, I, I can't speak to specific um, specific technologies. I think they, they they are emerging. But I'll just give you an example of a, of a fantastic project that we we've been involved in. We had a, a canola oil manufacturer called MSM Milling um, in uh, central New South Wales that switched from um, an LPG boiler to bio, biomass fueled fired boiler. Uh, massive in, massive reduction in emissions. Massive reduction in cost. I think a seventy percent reduction in their energy costs by switching this to to a biomass technology. So it's not just about electrification. It's about using the right technology or, or just being smart about your industrial process and having experts come in who know the technology uh, and working with with the companies is is what's required. So you know, Arena's there to provide financial support, but ultimately we need those supply chains in the industry industrial side to. Um, see what's possible, advise their customers, work with Arena, work with their banks to, to finance these things. Um, and you can get huge emissions reductions and cost reductions by doing, by doing smart things. And I guess, you know, there's also the branding element of it. So I know uh, that there's around the world there are products like green aluminium, and I suppose there would even be a product like green uh, cement. I suppose if there was a standard certification, then some of those products might... Uh, I don't know if the selling price would be any different, but 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 maybe they get credit for like international carbon schemes or something like that in in, in a way that uh, would would make it uh, interesting to the companies to to look at it. Yeah, I think I think that's probably a fair point. Um, but um, yeah, we don't have global alignment on what that would look like at this point. So maybe that's something that will come in the future. Darren, it's been a fantastic um, conversation. I just want to wrap up with a couple other quick little questions just about some other sort of disparate projects that you've got. Um, I think you've been involved in waste to energy. Can you just clarify um, waste to energy? A um, bit of controversy about whether that, how much that reduces emissions or not. Um, do you have any particular insight into that? Yeah, I mean, so we were asked, um, uh, I think it was in 20, maybe 2017 or early 2018 by Minister Frydenberg at the time to prioritize waste to energy um, you know we've got um, issues with um, landfill in Australia and, and certainly with uh, China closing closing the door on um, um, a lot of recycling you know we've had to sort of take that on board and deal with it in Australia so it is important it's not it's not purely uh, an, a renewable energy um, story or, or initiative but but certainly waste reduction and um, being smarter about how we uh, minimize waste and reduce and recycle and ultimately when 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 you've done all of that well you have a landfill issue that you either uh, allow landfill to occur and, and and as we know unless you're capturing the methane emissions at landfill you've got um, a huge amount of methane that gets released from a lot of these um, 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 sites and so it, it, it does help 
um, from an emissions perspective, if you, can, if you can take the waste and process it either through incineration or other technologies like pyrolysis and you get to utilise the energy you're displacing, then, you know, obviously largely coal and gas in our current grid. So we do quite a careful life cycle assessment on projects um, at the feasibility stage as well as once they're built to ensure that there is a sufficiently high renewable energy component to, to, to justify it being something that ARENA would support. And, and so far, we, um, um, you know, we, we're supporting projects that where around 50 or 60% of the energy is effectively renewable. And um, it speaks to those other topics as well about waste reduction and minimization. Mm. Darren, I just had one, we are coming to the end of our time. Uh, in fact, we're over time, but it's so interesting. Um, I, just one other technology that does seem to have not been able to get going in Australia is solar thermal. I'm just wondering how you and Arena are, are seeing the prospects for a solar thermal project in, 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 in Australia now. Yeah, so um, it, 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 we are supportive of solar thermal and I think we have a couple of things we might be able to announce um, uh, shortly, but, but I can't talk about them right this minute. But I mean, solar thermal is, 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 a, is a technology that could do really well in Australia with our um, large land, land mass and distributed grid and sort of weak, weak fringe of grid areas. Solar thermal provides um, inertia, it provides uh, renewable energy, it provides storage. So it is something that we think is interesting, especially for the Australian environment. Uh, it has, is obviously challenged in that, and I think we've got many, uh, three, 400 gigawatts of solar PV in the world. I think maybe even 600 gigawatts. I don't even know what the number is these days, but but only five gigawatts of solar thermal. So it just hasn't had that ability to go through the cycles of learning and, and cost reduction that solar PV has had. Uh, and so I think the jury is still out whether it gets to, to, to the point where it is competitive. But it does, it is interesting from an electricity point of view that it comes you know, with storage as part of its core uh, thing, its, its core technology. And, and as, as we have a higher renewable system, we need system security, we need you know, storage, we need renewable energy, and solar thermal can do all, all of those things. So it's certainly something that um, we are still keen to, to work with and investigate, and both at the commercialization stage as well as research. And we have um, some top researchers in Australia working on, on solar thermal technology. Uh, so we're, we're pretty confident that, um, well, we're certainly convinced we should continue to work in the space. As to whether it competes successfully against the other technologies, time will tell. Darren, I've got a, a, a dozen more questions and I'd love to keep on going, but as David has pointed out, we've probably um, reached the uh, the normal uh, limit of our um, podcast time. So, look, I'd just like to thank you very much for coming in and um, onto the onto the podcast and, um, and uh, look, fascinating discussion and um, look forward to hearing more about um, the solar project, um, solar thermal projects and, um, and many of the other projects that you've got coming up, such as the pumped hydro. And I do repeat my request not to make any Christmas Eve announcements and uh, <laughs> look forward to hearing some more. <laughs> All right, Giles. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thanks, Darren. Thanks very much. It was uh, fascinating to listen to. Cheers. And that was Darren Miller, the Chief Executive of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. And um, yes, look, David, um, a really interesting in interview on so many levels. I guess for me, the big points were just the transition that's happening at the local network level, the sort of transition to um, distributed resources. But I was pretty fascinated by some of his um, 
talking about the hydrogen economy and you know reaching not just 100% renewables or 200% renewables but if you're going to have a full-blown hydrogen economy then you're probably looking at something like 600 or 700% renewables um, we're a long long way away from that but it's an interesting vision for the future indeed it is and of course of more practical interest i suppose is we're going to get a pumped hydro near-term practical interest we're going to get a uh, pumped hydro uh, funded thing in south australia by the end of this year which uh, i guess we'll look forward to in the interview i kind of uh, myself uh, pushed aaron not to talk too much about integrating distributed energy uh, into the main grid and how that could work because I, I take it for granted that that'll be done but certainly it's a very interesting emerging area of the economy on the hydrogen stuff i i, I do think it's going to take a long time because uh, it's just so out of the market at the moment. And as far as industrialisation of electricity goes, um, uh, uh, sorry, of power in general, that's a major topic for the whole world. And I expect we'll, we'll see uh, many advances on that uh, over the next decade. Well, what you're talking about then is two major sectors which are really just at, that, at the nascent part of the transformation. It seems to me like a pretty good argument for Arena to continue business. I mean, as we noted at the start of the interview, they're running out of funds in about three years. That was the design, I guess. But... Um, their funds had been reduced um, by this government when they got to power after 2013. I think Arena strike rate's been pretty good. I mean, um, a couple of the projects sort of failed spectacularly, but actually Arena hadn't actually committed to funds. Um, you know, I'm thinking about a couple of wave projects and a couple of the early geothermal things, which probably actually happened before Arena itself was constituted. And I suppose you could say that there's been some criticism of Arena's level of funding for individual projects, and and, and while that may be debatable, um, certainly the over I mean, for instance, in some of the early solar farms, what they've achieved over the longer term, those vast cost reductions have has been valuable, and um, seems to me like a very good reason to keep it going to address those um, industrial issues and the hydrogen issues. Well, well, there are two or three things, uh, just quickly. Uh, one is that uh, you are going to blow up a lot of money when you invest in research and development and, and chase pots of gold at the end of rainbows for, for technologies, most of which will be losers. Uh, but there is nevertheless a uh, role for government to be doing that. Certainly, it's not something the private sector can do. And I guess Arena's now built up quite a level of expertise and process uh, that, that I think should you know, I, I think there's probably a role for it going forward. Uh, I think the CFC's also done very well. Uh, secondly, I think uh, in terms of the commercialisation of solar, I mean, it just happened to catch the wave at the right time. You know, really, that was a translation of what was going on in the rest of the world into the Australian uh, market. And uh, Arena was certainly pivotal in doing that. Uh, uh, that would be my main main comments on yeah. that. And, and look, it would be interesting, as you said, on the pumped hydro. Um, so they're looking with South Australia um, to support one single pumped hydro scheme. Um, Darren Miller did say that there's probably only room for one, so it's going to be interesting to see what the uh, federal government comes up with it in its separate UNGI scheme, because if it's going to be mandating several to go forward, um, several are on the shortlist, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, Charles, that, that brings us to the point about, in general, how what's the role for government uh, in, in all of this, and the Grattan report... Uh, had a, uh, a, a, a very telling report. They're a very uh, private enterprise, but I might say in, in a nice way. Uh, uh, and they, they believe government picking winners like uh, Snowy 2 is in, entirely in, uh, inappropriate. It should have gone through a process. Uh, myself, after I agree with that completely. It should have gone through a process. But uh, after many uh, 
hours of thinking about that particular project, I've come to the conclusion that it may be a loss maker, it may not be the best project, but it's still going to be one that in the end will, will provide a function for Australia and gives AEMO and consumers a, a level of comfort when it's eventually built. Um, it, could but, be the, it could be the ANZ Stadium of the energy industry. Uh, yes. <laughs> Uh, I must say I hadn't thought about it like that, but perhaps perhaps that's right, Charles. I was just thinking of West versus Canterbury with 7,000 people sitting in an 80,000 stadium, but anyway. But the broader issue uh, is, you know, how much do we actually need? What's How should we determine how much of this uh, dispatchable power or firming power if you need? Angus Taylor says we, we need more of it right now. And if you recall, that was based on a single solitary sentence uh, in the Rod Sims's report that it was difficult to get finance in the medium term for, for thermal generation. Uh, and out of that, he's built this huge castle of uh, tendering uh, without many specifications for new firming power, which, as Grattan reports, is certainly going to get in the way, one of many obstacles facing anyone wanting to build that in the current market. I think another question is whether the current market design, and I'm not sure if Grattan, I haven't read it yet, actually covers that, because there's a, I think there's quite a, a good chance that firming power won't be built until it's too late. But uh, because right now those price signals don't actually exist, and so you've got to make a, uh, anyone who wanted to build, uh, say, pumped hydro in South Australia, is taking a risk not only on other people building it, uh, but they're also taking a risk on the New South Wales South Australia interconnector. And, and it's, it's very hard to build that. So market design's uh, quite an issue. The market can deliver it. Uh, and I just think um, we've focused on the wrong things to a certain extent at the federal level. Yeah. In, in that Grattan report, there's a great graph that you pointed out to me, Sean, showing the result of government decisions and announcements of intervention and how that actually sort of precipitated a rise in wholesale prices, particularly because, you know, the uncertainty in the market and the fact that it's displacing private investment, which is generally more efficient. Um, the Grattan report, I don't think it talks that much about future market designs, but it does have an interesting take on how to manage the exit of coal and sort of encouraging them to sort of put their own funds into a bit of a pool which sort of guarantees them to sort of um, continue operating within a certain defined period. But um, um, yeah, like, like, the car, like the car industry did. Uh. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> subject to debate. Look, um, what, we, we're going to better wrap this up because we had a very long interview, a great interview with Darren Miller. But um, look, what else is on your horizon? I'm thinking of the AFR Energy Summit um, over the next couple of days, we're going to hear from Taylor. be interesting to see if he has anything to say about that Ungi scheme. We're going to be hearing from Kerry Schott, presumably about the design, the early work on the design of the new market. And we'll also be hearing from Audrey Zieberman from AEMO. Um, anything else the on people, your the people, the pe- Well, the people who go to that summit, as far as I can see, are, are the business leader type people who generally don't understand the industry. And so what you get is high-level political messages, <laughs> uh, more, more, more than the actual uh, reality of what needs to be done. Look, in the market, we saw Cogan Creek started back up again, and over the long weekend when demand was naturally low, that resulted in uh, power prices uh, crashing, being zero for much of the day. In, uh, in so- Queensland and in South Australia too, and it was really interesting to see the late Bonnie Wind farms switching off at negative prices, and they're waiting for a big battery to be switched on, and that's taking time, but anyway... Yeah, and then I've been reviewing the MLF factors myself, Giles, and uh, noting that in a number number of states, you know, it's clear that solar in particular suffers a a bad MLF factor across Australia, across the NEM. Uh, And uh, and on the other hand, gas and to an extent coal outside of Queensland gets very good MLFs. And so, you know, do we really need, is it appropriate? Again, this is a policy question. Uh, do we really want to penalise these new entrants with bad MLFs? I mean, my answer is clearly no, we don't. And 
I think this MLF's just uh, reflect again the, the poor state of transmission planning, and that's one thing the Grattan report did call for, like everyone else, is some pre-funding of transmission so we can get the. Anyway, that's my bugbear. You know where I stand on that. Well, that's right. Look, we look forward to seeing an article published on Renew Economy. Look, um, David, I think that's a bit of a wrap for today. It's time to thank our sponsors, Solaray Energy and Evergen. Thank you for your ongoing support. And um, look, we'll be back next week um, with another interview and a bit of a review of what happened um, this week. And uh, look forward to chatting then, David. Yes, indeed, Charles. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.